0: on the Last Supper here, continuing our study through the book of Mark, that's why we're doing communion, and the reason I'm excited about this is because a lot of times when we do communion, don't, we don't get a chance to actually teach on communion. Um, we do communion, and we'll talk about what communion means and represents, but we'll get a chance to actually teach on it, and that's what I like about doing this tonight, So we get a chance to actually go back and say, this is why we do what we do here when it comes to communion out here at church. Continue our study through the book of Mark. Let's pray and get going right into this. Lord, good to be here tonight, always a blessing, and let, Lord, you be blessed by what we say and what we do for your glory and always in all ways and all things in your name, Amen. Picking it up in verse 12, last week what we did is we're down to the final days here of Christ's life on this earth. Actually, now that we're down to the last supper, we're down to the final hours of Christ's life on this earth. Now, it's hard to believe, but if you go all the way back to Mark chapter 11, these last few chapters, it seems like we've been covering a lot. We're only covering a few days. When you read through the Gospels, it's amazing how quickly time moves. And what I encourage you to do, and this is what I do when I read through the Gospels, is you mark the feasts. So that way when you mark the feast, you can get a feel for how much time is actually passing. And you can kind of stop and realize, okay, so when it says he goes to Jerusalem for another Passover, you realize it's been a year. You can kind of keep track of that. So what happens here is the triumphant entry happened back in Mark chapter 11. So like I said, we're really only been in a week here for the last three chapters. It just seems like it's been a lot longer than that. So we're down to the final hours of Christ's life. This is the Last Supper. And we're going to talk about what this is. Mark 14, verse 12. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Now, we're going to stop right here to make sure we get a little bit of a theme for this and make sure we get an understanding of what we're talking about. Can you go with me to Exodus chapter 12, please? Exodus 12. Two words mentioned there in Mark 14, Passover and unleavened bread, which makes sure we have a biblical understanding of what these two events are. If we do not understand these events, it will not make any sense to us and why we're talking about this, and it will not make any sense to us of why Jesus was crucified at this moment, at this time. Please remember when you're studying out, you're going to Exodus 12, as you're studying out the death of Christ and his betrayal and his arrest and his trials, this is all under God's sovereign plan. Jesus makes many references to this. He mentions to Pilate, you have no power. It looks like you're in charge, but you're not in charge. This is all understood. Even Judas betraying Jesus is prophesied. It says, so the scripture might be fulfilled. So God is in complete control of this. So Jesus just did not happen to be crucified during Passover unleavened bread. It was planned for him to be crucified during Passover unleavened bread. These two feasts in Exodus 12 and Exodus 13, and you can also go back and read further on in Exodus and Leviticus. It gives more details how it's supposed to be. These two feasts are separate feasts, but they're really looked at as one. Passover was one day, and unleavened bread lasted a week. But they were so combined, they ended up looking like one feast. They were one of the three required feasts that if you were a Jewish male, they were asking you to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And the background behind Passover is this. You remember the story from your Sunday school days. The Jews were slaves over in Egypt, and they did the ten plagues to get them to be let go. The last plague was the death of the firstborn. So what happened is for the Jewish people to be protected, they took a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, and they killed the lamb and they took the blood and they put it on the doorpost, up the sides, across the top and down the bottom. And so therefore when God came over to judge Israel, he saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over those houses and those kids were safe, those people were safe. Hence Passover. You can see the symbolism there. The blood of a lamb saved them. Jesus Christ is the lamb that saves us. But just to kind of show you just a little bit look here at exodus chapter 12 let's start in verse 3 it says speak to all the congregation of israel saying on the 10th of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father a lamb for a household so a lamb for a household now i like little old testament details i like old testament details i heard a pastor say one time wherever you cut the bible open it bleeds because everything is a picture of Jesus Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, just look for Jesus. I love this idea of the Lamb representing Christ. And I love the idea of a household. Because just just follow what has happened here. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was one animal death per person. So Adam and Eve sinned, and then if you remember correctly, animals were killed to give them clothes. Okay, now we fast forward to the Exodus. Now you have one animal dying per household. Fast forward a little bit further to the Day of Atonement, you have one animal dying per year for an entire nation. Fast forward a little farther, now you have one man, Jesus, who's the Lamb, dying for the entire world. You just see how God just kind of keeps building this up. So verse 4, if the household is too small for the Lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need you shall make your count for the lamb there's no leftovers you got a small family invite your neighbors this is a very family centric event your lamb shall be without blemish a male the first year you may take it from the sheep or from the goats now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts this is what we were talking about and on the lintel of the houses where they shall eat it then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with the bitter herbs they shall eat it. You see unleavened bread now starting to come into this. If you've ever been involved in a Seder meal, you know some of these food items, which we'll get to that in a little bit. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roast it in fire, its heads and its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. No leftovers. What remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Remember at this moment at this time they are getting ready to go. God is saying listen when this judgment comes on the firstborn of Egypt they're going to tell you to go. Get dressed, get ready, and go. 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations." This is why Jesus is still celebrating it. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. See how they're so united there. Passover right into unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So you see the two feasts there. You see the background on how we got to it. A couple of different things here I want to throw at you just to know some stuff about it. The word unleavened in the Bible and the Hebrew is where we get our word matzah. So if you're familiar with matzah bread, that's the Hebrew word for unleavened bread. That's why we talk about matzah bread. Number two, we talk about a Seder meal. Seder literally means order. There's an order to this meal, the way it's supposed to be. Everything in the Passover had a symbolic meaning. If you've never been involved in a Seder meal, I encourage you to do it sometime. We've done, I think, about two or three out here at church. Um, If you remember our uh, Jewish missionary friend Ephraim that actually lives over in Israel, he's coming back this spring, or next spring, I should say, and he's going to teach us again. He's not doing a Seder meal this year. He did that last year or two years ago. I can't remember. But if you get a chance to do a Seder meal, the symbolism is just fascinating. Fascinating. And you can even do it at home. We've done it at home one time with our boys too. Got some lamb roasted it, got the different things. So you have the bitter herbs that talk about the bitterness of slavery. You have the salt to remember the tears that are shed when you're in Egypt. Then you have the lamb that's been sacrificed. You have all these things. And it's beautiful symbolism. And remember the word Seder means order. It's very orderly as you go through it. And if you do a full Seder meal, it's ours. It's ours. So this meal, this last supper we're talking about with Jesus, this is not a fast food meal. This is a long drawn out prepared meal. This is why I like in the book of John. When you read like John chapters 14, 15 and 16, this is all at the last supper. There's just a lot of time to talk and have fellowship. It's supposed to be this blessed time as you look back. Now for us as Christians as we look back, we see all the symbolism pointing to Jesus Christ. So that's what's pretty neat about it. So Seder, order, that's the note there we're talking about there. Unleavened. Idea of leaven represents sin in the Bible. Just keep that in the back of your mind. So you want things to be unleavened, which means you want the sin out. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. See, leaven represents sin. So Paul's saying, get the leaven out of your life. Ties it back into Passover now. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So Jesus is our Passover. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. So Christ is our Passover. And we see this from other references, too. Remember when John saw Jesus walking towards him, John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter comes right out and says, 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's the Passover lamb. And Jesus is described in Revelation 5 as the lamb that has been slain. So Jesus is our lamb, the blood that saves us from death. Unleavened represents the sin getting out of our lives. So you see here the importance of these two feasts, what they mean and represent back during Jewish times from Exodus 12, but also what it means for us spiritually as well. So therefore, this is why Christ was sacrificed during unleavened bread, Passover, and you see the symbolism of it. So that is a five-minute crash course on what those things mean we're going to take a quick little breath here anybody have any quick questions about unleavened bread passover old testament or what it means spiritually now or understanding the timing of why christ was killed at this moment at this time we good all right let's see what happens next then verse 13 and he sent out two of his disciples and said to them go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water follow him Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. It's kind of a neat little story here. You may not think it's pretty neat, but it's kind of neat. We know from secular history that it was not uncommon to have over 250,000 lambs sacrificed during Passover. So if each lamb represented a household, Jewish tradition, this is not in the Bible, so be careful about this, Jewish tradition said you're supposed to have a minimum of ten people per lamb. So you're talking two million plus people here in Jerusalem. So for them to find this guy, it's pretty neat, but it's also interesting, is this guy carrying a pitcher of water, I don't mean this in a sexist way, but back during Bible times, that would be considered woman's work. So this is quite the little sign here to find this guy, and they're just going to go in and say, hey... Verse 14, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover? And this guy blesses them and takes care of it. It reminds me a little bit of back in Mark chapter 11. If you remember correctly for the triumphant entry, Jesus back in Mark chapter 11 said, hey, just go to this village and you're going to find this colt tied up, this donkey. Go ahead and unloosen it. If somebody asks you why you're doing it, just say the Lord has need of it. And we joked at that moment that just try that with anything in life. Just tell somebody the Lord has need of it and you can just take it and walk away with it. But it shows right here, I love this, when God's leading and guiding you, you just got to trust him. If God says, go do it, just do it. We sit there and we wonder and we question and I don't have enough faith and I analyze it. Just see a guy carrying a pitcher of water and then just go up to him in verse 14 and say, the teacher says, where's the guest room? It's almost like you're talking in some type of secret code right here. But the Lord just leads and guides. I just tell you, be careful. Be careful of that paralysis of analysis where you sit there and you analyze everything and you won't take a step in faith because you just don't know all the details. You got these little stories every now and then to remind us. If God says just do it, just go do it. And in faith, see what the Lord has in store. I tell you, it's an adventure, folks. It's an absolute adventure because you never know what's going to happen. I, just a quick story about this. You remember a couple weeks ago, I told you about the, uh, uh, the homeless guy that I ran into in BG, right? And said, so talk to him, did some stuff with him, never got a chance to see him again. We were going into BG uh, last night. And as we're coming into BG, it's about 6 o'clock at night. It's getting dark, and we're getting ready to come in. And right there by Burger King, there's this guy laying out on the grass. And Don goes, do you think that's your guy? I said, I don't know. Let's go see. So he pulled in, and it was my guy. I said, how you doing? So we talked for a while, introduced him to Dawn, and, and I, I said, So what's going on? So we talked for a while about stuff, and, and he, he needed some food and everything. I said, We're going to do this. I said, Okay, Dawn, you take the kids and go do this. And I said, Him and I are going to go shopping. So we went to the store, and, I'm, and he's pushing around his stuff, and we're buying things for him. And I just sat there thinking, Lord, you are completely, utterly sovereign. That this is the time that we went. Dawn saw him. I didn't saw him. We stopped. It's him. And now I'm in the store shopping with this guy. And we're just talking like we're just old friends. And next, you know, I gave him my number. I'm just talking. Anyway, the point is just God said it's just an adventure, folks. It's just an adventure. And so sometimes you just got to take those steps of faith and say this doesn't make any sense. I don't know why I'm doing it other than the Lord said do it and just do it. Some of my favorite moments in life have just been the Lord said go and I go. And I have no idea what's going to happen. And these disciples, hey, you're going to go into crowded Jerusalem, millions of people. You're going to look for that guy with the water pitcher and say, hey, we're going to come eat the meal. Where's the room? God says, I got it covered. Just trust him. Take the walk of faith and trust him and see what happens. Verse 17 In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, as Surely I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one by one, Is it I? Another said, Is it I? He answered and said to him, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, we get a lot more detail here in the other gospel accounts on this. A lot more detail, and I want to go to that with a little bit. Can you go with me to John chapter 13, please? John 13. Okay, you've got to let go of the classic picture of the Last Supper. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus sitting in the middle perfectly split, the disciples on each side, and they're all looking and they're sitting at this very nice table, orderly, etc. Yeah, this is not what it's like in any way. The Bible says that they're reclining. This is very relaxed. It was probably on a U-shaped type table with grown men almost laying down really close to each other. And we know in a little bit here when Jesus was talking about the one who I dip in the dish, why, because you're sharing a community bowl? I don't know if you've ever have had any Middle Eastern friends or have done any outreach or anything like that. I know we've been involved with some of that before. And it's a completely different way of eating. It's a completely different way of just doing things. And you just kind of got to get used to it. Because we're used to these set plates and forks and napkins and etc. And sometimes in different cultures like that, it is literally hands-in community, and you're along for the ride on that. So here they are. you got to let go of that view. And also, I don't know why. They always present the disciples as these bearded old men. Have you ever noticed that? These guys were young. Jesus was about 33, 34 years old. Most people believe these disciples were probably younger than him. Some of them could have even been picked at teenagers. These are young guys. Their whole life consisted of Christ. They gave up everything. Matthew left his tax collecting business. Peter, Andrew, John, James left this fishing business. They've been following him for years now. They literally trusted in him for meals and safety and leadership and guidance. They, they truly were walking in faith, and Christ is saying, "One of you is going to betray me? And not only that, in the other gospel accounts, I, I'm dying. I'm going to die. This was absolutely earth-shattering to them. And now they're saying, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Which I find fascinating. Because it's amazing how quickly someone can make you feel guilty, and I always tell people all the time, people come into counseling, and they'll be like, you know what, my mom always makes me feel guilty, and I always stop them. And I say, no one has the power to make you feel guilty. You are choosing to feel guilty. No one has that power over you. But I'm going to tell you a story about one time when somebody made me feel guilty. I was at college, and I was in a music class that was required, and I'm taking this music class and taking a test, and I don't know what happened, but the teacher gave us this huge speech before the test, and he goes, I saw you cheat. I know you cheated on last test. I am watching you, and if you cheat right now, you will fail this course. And he looked right at me. I had convinced myself that I cheated. I know I didn't cheat it, but I was so sure that I must have cheated. I must have done it because you're looking right at me and it's just this feeling of guilt and what did I do wrong? So Jesus is looking across the 12 and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all start thinking, is it me? See us see what happens here. John 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Why was he troubled in spirit? He was human. He loved these guys. He loved him. Judas is going to betray him. Peter's going to deny him. They're all going to be scattered. He testified and said, "Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning, see, leaning, reclining. This is the closeness of this meal, folks. Leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask him it was whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do quickly. Now stop right here for a second. Don't read on. It's pretty straightforward, right? This gives us a little bit of a tidbit of Judas amongst the twelve. Look at 28. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box... That Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. That's how much the disciples trusted Judas. So when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the other 11 didn't look around and say, oh, it's Judas. It's got to be Judas. No, they thought it was them. This is what's just so absolutely amazing about this. So now, once you know the context of this, please now look at John Great book. If you don't have a book you're going through for devotions, check this out with John. Start there in 31. Look at the rest of 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. This is all the Last Supper time. You see at the end of... 31, chapter 14, arise, let us go from here. Some people believe that maybe that's when they started walking to the area. You're still, this is just one evening. You're reading chapter after chapter after chapter. This is what Jesus' heart was at the Last Supper. It's a great study to get into, and I encourage you if you don't have something you're doing for devotions to get into it. But jump back now to Mark, please. Mark gives us a condensed version of it. So Judas is the one that betrayed him. Everybody else is sorrowful. And and Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. This is the guy that's going to betray me. And now we're getting part forward here to the actual Last Supper part. We'll stop here for a quick second. Any quick questions about this here before we move on? All right. Start with the Last Supper then. 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And they took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, "This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the vine of this drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God." And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is this is a powerful passage here. When you understand this, can you go with me to Luke twenty-two? I want you to see Luke's account of this because there's a little bit added here in Luke's account that I think is good. Luke 22, look at 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him, and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In the Greek, that's powerful. It literally is translated, desire, desire. Jesus really wanted to do this. I mean, this, this was a big deal to him. He understood what was coming. The disciples didn't have a clue. He got it. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Which is pretty neat to think about this. Can you imagine sitting and and having a cup of of juice there, of the grape, with Christ? Can you imagine communion with Christ? 17, he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, take, eat, take this, and divide it among yourself. That phrase there, forgive thanks, for you that were raised Catholic, in the Greek, that is where you get the term Eucharist from. So, the term Eucharist is a Greek term that literally means give thanks. He's saying right here that this is the new covenant. This is our word for testament. So, the New Testament, New Covenant. This is the new deal that God is going to be doing with us. 19, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Unleavened bread. You know, a lot of times when we do communion, I've been in communion at other places, they have a loaf of bread that is not unleavened. And I got to be honest, it's nice. You'd kind of take it and you kind of rip off a part of it. But unleavened bread here, when he's breaking it, you can envision this big piece of unleavened bread and snapping it. And he gave it to them, said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, the Passover was from generation to generation to generation to always remember what God has done. Communion is to always remember what God has done. Likewise, he took the cup after supper. This is where it gets a little interesting here. We keep mentioning the cups. If you've ever been to a Seder meal before, you know there's four different cups, there's four different times. Most people believe that this would be the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. Real quick, this comes from Exodus chapter 6. It says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. They take that passage and they break that down into four different things. They have a cup of sanctification. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. A cup of blessing. I will free you from being slaves to them. A cup of redemption. I will redeem you, purchase you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. Most people believe that that cup, the third cup in the Seder meal, is what Jesus was referring to in verse 20. And then you have the fourth cup of acceptance. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Please note also in verse 20 where it says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. That word shed in the Greek literally means poured. My blood is poured out for you. There's a lot of things going on here. We have the covenant New Testament, Eucharist giving thanks, Passover remembering, communion remembering. And then it says in Mark's account that they sang a hymn. If you want to look at those hymns, it's probably Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They're called the praise hymns or the halal, H-A-L-L-E-L. Those are the hymns that they would have sang. On a side note, wouldn't you love to hear Jesus sing? I just think that'd be fascinating to hear Jesus sing. He wanted to do this. Fervent desire, I want to do this. It says in the book of Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross. So that's what communion is. Communion literally means fellowship. It's koinonia. If you've ever heard that term before, we talk about koinia, fellowship, oneness. When you're taking communion, you're having oneness. Oneness with the body of Christ and that idea of oneness to understand what Jesus went through. I heard a pastor teach one time saying, communion is the closest you could ever get to being at the cross. It's the closest you could ever get. And Jesus said, I want to do this with you guys. And he says, I want to do this so bad, I'm going to wait to do this again until we're in the kingdom. Which is an amazing thought to think about. So when you get ready to take communion, understand what it is. Now at this point, I want to go through a couple things here of why we do what we do out here at church. Number one, questions that people have asked over the years. Do we have an age for communion? Maybe some of you were raised in a mainline church where you had first communion. I heard a pastor say this, I can't think of a better answer. So how old should your child be before they start taking communion? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. When would you like your child to start remembering Jesus? At that age, start doing communion with them. We do communion at home as a family, and we've started very young with our kids. And at first, you're just teaching them not to break the cracker up into lots of little pieces. But then they start to learn. And you're teaching them that, no, you don't chug the whole juice cup. You know, you try to teach them these things this in remembrance. When do you want your kids to start remembering Jesus? At that age, start teaching them what communion is. We do what we call open communion out here. We don't have a church membership. If you're here tonight, you're welcome to partake of communion. Now, at that point, I usually stop, and we'll get to the point of it in a little bit here, of self-examination, but open communion means we don't have a church membership. There are certain churches, denominations if you go to that you're not allowed to. They have a closed communion policy, so we always say we have an open communion policy. We do juice. We don't do alcohol. Some churches do alcohol. The reason we don't do alcohol is we know people that have struggled with alcohol, and so why do we want to put alcohol in front of them? This works pretty good. It's juice, it's of the vine, it's a good symbolism. We do unleavened, we do crackers. Like I said, we have had communion out here before where it was leavened bread. I've been involved with communions that do that. I do believe that that is not an unbiblical concept in the sense of like you're sinning, but if you're going to do it like they did it here, you want to have some type of unleavened bread. Now let's get to the big one. Do we believe that this is the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ? No, we do not believe this is the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you were raised probably Catholic, you were probably taught that that is the literal body and blood of Christ. If you were raised Lutheran, Lutheran kind of changes it a little bit there. You start getting into these different things. You start getting into this concept of transubstantiation and then consubstantiation. And we don't get into that. And if you want to know why we don't believe it's literal, I'll tell you, because I believe you need to have a a biblical backing for whatever we do. Number one, if this was literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that doesn't make any sense because it would be against a good Jewish law to truly eat somebody's flesh and drink their blood. That's against the law. Why would they incorporate that? That doesn't make any sense to have some form of cannibalism and some type of drinking someone's blood against the law. Number two, Jesus instituted communion before he went to the cross. So therefore, when he says, take, eat, this is my body, this is my bread, he, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. So if he hasn't gone to the cross yet, he hasn't offered it up as a sacrifice yet. So therefore, it couldn't literally have been it yet because the sacrifice wasn't offered up yet there as well. So those are the couple of the reasons that we do that. Some people really want to get into that and talk about that a little bit more, and I'd be more than willing to talk about that afterwards if you want to. But those are the reasons why we don't believe it's the literal because there's nothing in the Bible that seems to say that it is literal. It seems to be talking in a very symbolic nature that this is supposed to be done in remembrance. Remembrance. Now, if you could go with me to Corinthians, this is the passage that we use mostly when it comes to the concept of doing communion. And go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A lot of time when we do communion out here, I'll either have um, Rich has come up and done it before, Renee's come up and done it before, and sometimes I go over in there and just have a time of prayer with people that want to have a prayer. I usually go to 1 Corinthians 11. I know when Renee has done it before, he's done it out of the uh, book of Luke. It all works. Um, 1 Corinthians 11:23. I usually go and I read, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night which is betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke and said, take, eat. Remember, given thanks, Eucharist, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You're doing this in remembrance Communion is fascinating. You are looking back in remembrance. So often, especially in the New Testament, God wants you just to keep looking forward. Now in the Old Testament, there's a lot of looking back. There is the Feast of Booths, there's this and that, and there's a constant reminder of sin, it says in the book of Hebrews. In the New Testament, there's supposed to be a press towards the goal, except in Communion. 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new testament, and my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You are looking backwards and remembering, but you're also proclaiming his death till he comes. It's fascinating. You're doing two things at the same time, looking back and looking forward at the same time. That's what's so amazing about communion. I remember what he's done for me, that this is a picture of his body and his blood given for me, but I'm also looking forward to him returning. You get to do both at the same time. I love that. Now, this is what I mentioned to you earlier, 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he eats and drinks in unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. See, what was happening in the church of Corinth, they were turning communion into a drunken festival party. So big meal, big party, and guess what we're going to do? We're going to eat before everybody gets there, so I get my share, and we're going to turn into this big feast, and they totally lost what was going on. Please note, this is only about 30 years after Christ died on the cross. I can remember when we used to have um, cookies and um, desserts after the Christmas praise night, and we would dismiss to go back. And the kids would do a dead run to get back there first. And the first people would take their plates and those kids would have so many brownies, cookies, whatever on them. I doubt those kids were truly thinking about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins. Same thing was happening at the church at Corinth. Hey, it's communion. Ah, I hope he brings that. Oh, I hope she brings that, yep. Hey, let's start eating now before everybody else gets here because what happens is there's not going to be anything left. They totally lost the meaning of it. And so Paul is warning them, saying, you guys, you're not understanding this. You're drinking and eating in an unworthy manner. and You're not giving it the respect that is deserved. That's why we always give you a chance to have a time of confession before communion. Does this mean that I think that if you're sitting here tonight and you're in sin, that you shouldn't partake of communion? If you're an unrepentant sin and you don't want to be repentant, then I would say you're in dangerous ground. That's why we have a time of repentance before you start. To stop and say, Lord, these things are on my heart. I know I'm wrong on this. And as I look back and remember what you did on the cross for my sins, I am now taking these things to you and asking, Lord, for that continued forgiveness and grace and mercy, and I will rejoice in it. But if you just want to sit there and say, listen, I know I'm wrong, and I don't care I'm wrong, and I'm still going to do it for some type of religious ritual... You, you are on thin ice. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. So be careful about that. That's not a warning to say, boy, I'm going to get up and leave before we take communion. No, it's a time to say, hey, I'm admonishing you. Let's repent. Let's get right with the Lord here. question that pops up sometimes is how often do we do communion? You maybe came out of church where you do the communion the fourth Sunday of the month or the first Sunday of the month and the third Sunday of the month. The way we do communion out here is this. When it fits into the message and the Lord leads, we do communion. Um, that's how it is. I'm not trying to sound ultra-spiritual. That's the way we do it. So today, I think I contacted everybody at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I said, hey, guys, we're doing communion today. Now, you may stop and say, but James, you were teaching on communion. When not you realize you were doing communion? I didn't want to just do it because we're teaching on it. I just don't want to say, hey, it's communion. we got to do it. I want to make sure the Lord's leading So I just spend a lot of time in prayer. A lot of times we do communion on Sunday. It is Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. I'm contacting Marv and everybody and saying, hey, we're doing communion. I don't think I've ever contacted you on a Sunday morning, have I? No, I have a little respect for that. But I just pray about it because I don't want it to be a forced thing. I'm not putting down churches or denominations that say we're doing it the first and the third. That's their call. But I want to say, I want it to fit in. It comes out to about once a month that we normally do communion. I do know a church that I respect greatly. Uh, The pastor has a deep heart and passion for the Lord. They do communion every morning at 6.30 at church. Every morning of the year, they open up their church at 6.30, and they have communion every morning for those that want to partake of it. If the Spirit's leading and it's blessing the people and they're remembering Christ, Amen. He takes that verse very literal. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says, I want to remember him on a regular basis. I would encourage you. Your communion does not just need to be right here. Please note the word does mean fellowship. We want you to do as part of the body of Christ. I encourage you men, go home and lead your families in communion. It it is a blessing to do. It's a great time to refocus. You can do communion by yourself. You can go into your private prayer closet with a cracker and a cup of juice, and I'm just going to go read the verses because I want to remember Christ. It doesn't have to be this formal thing that is done by a clergy member. It's something that you can just stop and say, Lord, I want to remember you. You're good. I had a situation recently, I was just so blessed by the Lord, and I just kind of thought, boy, this is why they offered sacrifices in the Old Testament. God, I just love you so much, I'm going to go kill an animal. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I want to do something, Lord, to show you that I just, just love you. God's like, you know, Why just sit with me for a while and do communion? And just let it be, oh, no, Lord, I need to do something that counts. Yeah, this is what Jesus ordained. This is what he's ordained. And I tell you what a blessing it is. So with that being said, I see the kids are out there. I don't know if you can hear me out in the foyer. You can bring the kids in. Like I said, we invite in the older kids because that way, uh, parents, we believe that uh, we leave it up to you to make sure they're old enough to understand and grasp what communion is. worship team is going to come forward here to help lead us in communion. At this point, let's stop and let's have that time of self-examination to stop and remember what Christ did, to never take for granted what Christ did on the cross, to never, ever take that for granted. As the kids are coming in, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, your word says to let there be a time of examination. I think of what uh, Paul wrote. Test yourself. See if Christ is in you. Lord, we come to you now. I think of what it says in Psalms. So Lord, search me. Try me. See if there's anything in me. Lead me into the way of everlasting. And Lord, we want to have this time of confession before you of what we're not right on. Because as we remember you, we look back for your death. And what you died for, you died for our sins. And Lord, we now give you those sins and say, Lord, we are struggling, we are sinning. We may be in outright rebellion. Now's the time to examine ourselves and come to you because we want to do this orderly for your glory, Lord. Lord, at this time, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, just to be completely overwhelmed by our sin. Thank you for the body that was broken. Thank you for the blood that was shed. Thank you for you doing it joyfully. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, we praise you for who you are and what you're doing. Help us to remember you as we partake of this in your name. Amen.